Well, hey, everybody, welcome to this edition of the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 6th, May 5th, May 7th. I don't know. It's all just kind of bleeding together. And uh, for those of you who are longtime listeners to uh, the podcast, you know that the whole premise of this thing is to explore the relentless grace of God that is directed at jacked up sinners like yours truly. And I am truly the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts. Uh, but the thing is, since March, since this whole COVID-19 thing happened, I have been doing nothing but talking about COVID-19 related uh, stuff. Um, and that's why I'm so thrilled today to have a non-COVID-19 oriented uh, podcast. Um, and uh, I, I just got to give you kind of a, a little bit of a backstory. Um, uh, I was uh, months ago um, listening to an old podcast that I had archived but never listened to. Um, and uh, the guest that I have today, Dr. Nate Collins, uh, who is the author of a book, um, All But Invisible, Exploring Identity Questions at the Intersection of Faith, Gender, and Sexuality, um, was the guest on this podcast. And I remember as soon as I got done listening to this podcast, I thought to myself, A, I have to talk to this guy and have him on my podcast. And B, I need to order his book. So I ordered his book. I put him on my list of guests that I wanted for my podcast. And then um, fast forward to yesterday, literally yesterday, my assistant reaches out to me and she says, uh, Noel, hey, are you ready to get started on new podcasts that are not COVID-19 related? I said, yeah, yeah. She goes, great. I booked Nate Collins for you. And my first reaction was, oh, no. I didn't read his book yet. So I'm a speed reader. So I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'll just pick up the book and read it real fast. And and the thing that's cool is when I left my office to go into quarantine, I grabbed five books that I wanted to read in my quarantine. And Nate Collins' book was one of the five books that I wanted to read during quarantine, but I hadn't cracked it open. So yesterday, literally yesterday, I thought, oh, this is easy. I'll just start reading it. And I cannot read this book fast. Like, first of all, it is really academic, like very, very thoughtful and academic, well-researched, well-footnoted. And second, the categories in which uh, uh, Nate talks about uh, human sexuality and orientation are so unicorn-like in a sense. They're so new and fresh to me that I had to read the book slowly. So I have to confess, I have read a portion of this book, but a very small portion. I'm normally a speed reader, but I just couldn't get through it. So that's why I'm so thrilled uh, to have Nate on today. He is the founder and president of Revoice, um, and he is married with three boys, lives in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And so Nate, uh, welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. Great to be here, Noel. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, I'm sorry that I've only read part of your book. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really, I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I have, uh, I rarely have a hard time speeding through a book, but yours was uh, just, uh, just amazing. Now, now, so, so here's here's my first question for you. You have your doctorate, so I guess you're Doctor Nate Collins. I, I should probably call you mm -hmm. Doctor Collins, but, yeah, um, but, uh, um, uh, was the topic of this book your dissertation? Because it's it's written like a dissertation. Well, so there's there's you know a little bit of backstory. Uh, there's a little bit of overlap, not much at all, honestly. Um, but I did happen to write the book in the middle of writing my dissertation, and so that's that's probably why it's a bit more academic than I mean than even I mean that I would prefer. 
um, a book like this, you, you kind of want it to have a wide readership. And um, I've, I've, I mean, it's, it's gotten fairly widely read, uh, but it does read more, more academically. I, I, I can't tell you how many times people have told me I had to read it twice. So on the one hand, it's like, oh man, they have to read it twice. It's not really that well, well written. On the other hand, I'm like, wow. Well, they, they really read it twice. It yeah, that they exactly. actually read it twice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and well, and I think that one of the the strengths of the book that I've read so far um, is that you are careful and and thoughtful. And mm-hmm. so I think when you're dealing with the topic at hand, um, it is easy to be cliche or to yep. kind of skip over the difficult arguments and not take the time. So you almost necessarily need to rabbit trail in a sense, mm-hmm. not that you rabbit trail in the book, but a good scholarly book has to say, okay, I have to trace this to its logical yep. end. Yep. Otherwise it's not doing the topic justice. That's right. I mean, and, and the, the, one of the major, one of the major goals in the book was to tease out all the different areas of the conversation that have not been discussed in depth or in nuance and so, uh, so I mean, that's exactly what I did. I, I tried to, to hit on aspects of the conversation, the evangelical conversation about gender and sexuality that typically get ignored. Um, so for instance, I, don't, I assume a traditional sexual ethic. I don't argue for it ever in the book. I figure that's been done plenty of times. People have answered uh, revisionist theology. Um, and so I made a very intentional effort to not argue for or dedicate any portion of the book to arguing for traditional sexual ethic. I just assume it and then uh, try to address aspects of the conversation that I think have have not been dealt with adequately. So give us a little bit of your story, especially as it re- I was suspecting that your story relates to uh, mm-hmm. writing this book. So uh, give us a little bit of backstory, just enough uh, for us to understand why you wrote the book you wrote and then move sure. into giving us a little bit of a long elevator pitch for the book for like okay. what it is that you talk about. Yeah, so I I, I turned forty this summer. Congratulations! Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill from here. I believe it. I believe it. Uh, this is the summer to turn forty, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just like one more thing, we have right? COVID nineteen. We have murder hornets, yeah, and you're we, turning forty. That's right. It just you know, just fits. Um, yeah. So I, I turned forty this summer, and uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always. Uh, experience some form of same-sex attraction uh as a little kid you know you experience that folks like me experience that is just feeling different not really knowing how we fit in um and then you know puberty hits and the hormones flood the brain and i notice that the things that are happening in my mind are not the things that i hear my friends talking about and so so i just have always known um that i was just different in that sense um I came out to my dad when I was 19 um, and then went off to Bible college. And I had always assumed that, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of, there's a, it's a lot of history <laughs> in the evangelical conversation about uh, gender and sexuality. And um, in the mid 2000s, when I went off to, actually, no, I went to Bible college in 2000. I went to Moody in Chicago. Okay. And, um, a very conservative I, school. Um, oh yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, theologically, I consider myself so. There's a lot that I um, really benefited from at Moody and then at Southern Seminary, where I got my MDiv and PhD. Um, but I'm a pretty open person, 
and uh, I just found myself opening up to people on my dorm floor. Um, I became an RA, and so the, the resident director that I reported to ended up uh, coming out to him uh, in the application process for that. Um, ended up uh, starting dating a woman who's now my wife, um, which is another story entirely. <laughs> is it, I suspect, okay, so I suspect that has to be an important part of the story because so gay friends that I've had, anytime mm-hmm. there's a story even remotely similar to what you just described, they yep. say, well, then you were never gay in the first place. So you're bisexual. Yeah. So this is not yeah, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is, this is, you know, it was some kind of facade. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, so there's, there are definitely, I mean, bisexuality is definitely a thing. Uh, it's not me though. Um, what I, the way I describe what happened with me is another, another man that I know, there's a lot of men that I know who predominantly are gay and also married to an opposite sex spouse. Um, there's a latent orientation that operates beneath the surface and in some ways is a sort of a default, but then there's a parallel track orientation that's directed towards one individual of the opposite sex they happen to be married to. And they op- those two orientations operate side by side. And that's basically what I would say in my case. I, I, so I, I'm one of those people that, uh, one of those people that I, I felt like I wanted to be married. I wanted to have a kid, have kids. I wanted to have a family. And my orientation did not strike me as a, um, a deal breaker, so to speak. And so I, uh, I met my wife in junior college, our first year. I mean, not junior college, Bible college. Um, and we didn't date for another month, uh, another year or so. And then um, when I thought about that, as, like actually asking her out, I, it, for me, it was very much a, I need to do this. So I'm being obedient to God. I felt God calling me. To, to ask her to, to date me. And uh, it was scary. It didn't feel natural to me, but I loved being around her. She was mm-hmm. one of my closest friends at the time. And so uh, she said yes, and ended up coming out to her that summer. And uh, she was, um, it was a, in some ways it was a difficult conversation, but in other ways it was just a normal, like this is something that any couple uh, this is the kind of thing that any couple will have to face at some point in their, their journey of uh, growing intimacy with each other. And so uh, her response was, well, I'm, if God wants us to be together, then he'll make that clear. If he wants us to, to separate, he'll make that clear. And either way, we'll still be friends. So, um, and eventually we, were, we dated for a year. And um, as we became more and more intimate in terms of just relational intimacy and then emotional intimacy and then spiritual intimacy and thinking about our calling together, um, the desires for physical intimacy just sort of become, became awakened little by little. And um, we got married about two years after we started dating and we've been married for actually 16 years this coming Friday. Oh, wow. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. So I have to imagine just even hearing your story there without even hearing the thesis of your book mm-hmm. that um, you probably get heat from both sides. Mm-hmm. Not not to make this so binary that there's just two sides to this sure, conversation, sure. but uh, because I think that's one of the one of the dangers in this whole thing is creating monolithic uh, generalities. Yep. Yep. Uh, but I would imagine you're getting pressure from all kinds of places. Yeah. Well, it, it's you know, early on. It, I mean, 
again in the mid 2000s the the predominant perspective that was that you would encounter in evangelical circles was the, the ex-gay narrative that you know you do xyz you uh repent enough you um you reinforce healthy gender stereotypes or gender norms right. enough and then you'll eventually change and become straight and that's conversion therapy conversion right. uh, yeah right. yeah in christian context i prefer to refer it to as conversion ministries okay. like it's not yeah. necessarily therapy okay. in the traditional sense my wife's a marriage and family therapist and so i'm like the particular therapy in therapy. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but I think that's the term that's typically yes, used yes. and thrust upon that, yeah. that sexual orientation change right. efforts. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm always very hesitant when I do share my story to make to there, there's plenty of us out there. Um, but that doesn't stories like ours should not be used as evidence that therefore gay people should try and pursue marriage. Um, it's definitely uh, an individual calling that the spirit places on people's lives and uh, that society or Christian culture should not put on people's lives or expectations. Well, you and know, and yeah. that was something, unfortunately, I was early on in our marriage. I, uh, that was the air we breathed. And so I sort of imbibed that early on unintentionally. I never went to a, you know, a conversion therapy ministry or anything like that. Um, but it was just, it was the literature that was out there. So it took, couple years after talking publicly and and realizing there was a broader conversation that was out there about gender and sexuality uh, before I realized wow I need to actually be really honest with myself and with more and more honest with other people about the fact that you know I, I haven't changed like I've changed in the sense that I, I now have a, a a wife that I love and I can't imagine life without um, but my underlying orientation it's a reality in my life and therefore it says things about me as a person. And I need to think theologically and biblically about what those things are and, and really tease out what, um, what is an occasion for repentance and what is just simply part of my, my personhood. Right. And I think, you know, you use the word normative in there. And I think just thinking back, I can think of the, in the mid two thousands, uh, there was a friend of mine who, she um, was not just um, a, a a lesbian in orientation. She she was a lesbian in full lifestyle advocacy. This mm -hmm. was and even career advocacy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, came to Christ and instantaneously said, "That's all gone," mm. and got married. And I think that when you hear a story like that. Mm -hmm. It's easy as a pastor, and and I remember, you know, she shared her testimony at our church, mm -hmm. and and just and she ended up getting married and having kids, and 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 in your mind, you take a story like that and you pluck it out, and yep. inadvertently, as a pastor, I look back on that and think, by placing that out there as the narrative that is used, yep. it says that is the normative Christian experience, and yep. then for other folks who are, um, have been I guess, trying for who, years, trying for years, then feel what you've done is you've given them a little wound in a sense yeah. of saying they're the one that is non-normative, but there is really, I think that's the interesting thing for me just in the evangelical conversation is I think that I think back, so I'll, I, I'm going to be 49 this year. So I'm, I'm nine years ahead of you, but okay. um, in my, in my experience through this, um, just as a pastor, there was the, the conversation at the big, 
beginning, the conversation 15, 20 years ago was, man, um, Christians were saying, you can change. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not born a certain way. Mm-hmm. And the um, the non-straight narrative was, no, I'm born this way. You know, Lady Gaga, I'm yeah. born this way. Um, and now the conversation is there is a fluidity in at least sexuality, if yep. not orientation as well. And so it. now you're kind of, we're kind of in this middle space, right? Where it's yep. now everybody's trying to figure out, but it seems this should put us in a position where we are able to actually have conversations mm-hmm. Yep. instead of ripping us apart. Yep. No, I think you, I think you nailed it. I've, I've often said that, that, sexuality is characterized in general by a degree of fluidity while orientation is more of a fixed uh fixed reality um now that 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 doesn't mean that i'm advocating people going out and exploring the fluidity of their sexuality (laughs) i think the only people that really um in terms of a christian worldview and thinking about you know sanctification all that only people that for whom sexual fluidity is a meaningful thing it would be i think people who are non-straight who do want to pursue marriage um and so like so for example me i i discovered that i could be sexually attracted to a woman now i can't imagine what it would be like to be sexually attracted to a woman besides my wife that blows my mind it freaks me out it weirds me out (laughs) (laughs) i just would not want to go there um but i am grateful for the degree of sexual fluidity that i have that's developed in me um well, gosh, gosh, that sounds like a very biblical sexual ethic. I mean, we are supposed <laughs> to with our regardless, you know, I don't want to say regardless of orientation, but I guess regardless of orientation, have a sexuality that is, is in a sense, binary and aimed in a single yeah. direction toward a single spouse for your lifetime. That, I yeah. mean, that, that is the biblical sexual ethic. In, in, my, in my book, I, I just, I named that uni heterosexuality. Uni heterosexuality? Yeah. So the, okay. the biblical norm is not heterosexuality in general, but uni heterosexuality. We're mm. created to have one object of sexual desire, one object of, of desire, really. Well, gosh, even if you think about it, just think about from a biblical perspective, what there are like, what, six passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, even about homosexuality in any, mm-hmm. in, in, in just a clear passages. But just the, there's a lit, I don't know, countless about just sexuality in general, yeah. and yeah. all of it coalesces into that that normative calling mm-hmm. to be married to one person for one lifetime and have your sexuality remain with that one person for a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've I've said you know that the the driving force for me for why I believe in the traditional sexual ethic does not center around the six clobber passages about same-sex sexual behavior, but it's grounded in Genesis 1 and 2 mm. and the, the charter that God lays out for humanity in terms of, of sexual union. Um, it seems clear to me, and it's reinforced in places like Matthew 19, that that has always been God's design. Mm-hmm. So let's, we, you know, we've gone this far without even talking really about your book. I mean, we've tangentially given sure, me sure. a little bit of the the elevator pitch for your book, like uh, if you were describing to somebody simply what it's about, mm-hmm. um, because again, as I as I dove into it, I thought I want to give this a careful read. And if I was to try to, 
even summarize. I'm not sure that I could yet. So give me the, <laughs> um, but I am really looking forward to taking my time going through it. Sure, so walk, sure. And I'd be happy me, to come back and, and, oh, and discuss once I've more. Done it, oh, I'd love to do that. So <laughs> so walk me through just a, kind of a, a long elevator pitch all the sure. way to Sears Tower. Well, so in terms of the outline, um, well, I already mentioned the goal. One of the primary goals for me was just to push the conversation a little bit farther using um reflecting on aspects of the conversation that I felt have not been adequately dealt with in the evangelical conversation about gender and sexuality. And so, you know, to do that, I, I basically, I, I highlight what I call the vision problem. So there's a vision, there's a, a vision problem in contemporary evangelical culture. And that vision problem is this, it does not cast, uh, it does not it is not clear how the Christian life can be flourishing for people who are sexual minorities or people who experience same-sex attraction or identify as gay. Uh, our culture, our Christian culture has not given a pattern that feels life-giving uh, hmm. for people with that experience. And so I, I named that as a vision problem. We have, we have no vision as a cultural Christianity in North America for how Christianity can be flourishing, how the gospel can be good news for, for non-straight people. Uh, we have a theological uh, answer for that because we're all sinners and we need a savior. And so that's the theological answer. But in terms of the practical, how can this be good news? How can a life of, of celibacy for, for most uh, LGBT or most gay, uh, gay uh, people, how can that be flourishing? And so I identify that. And then I so let, let me press pause for a second, just because sure. you said something I don't want to I don't want to lose. You, you said that we have a vision problem in Western Christianity. Are there places in history or places in the world where there is a good um, vision, a clear vision, a biblical vision that is cast that we could wrap our arms around? That's maybe uh, non-Western or non-American. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think there's aspects of other cultures. Um, I haven't thought too much about it, so I'm sort of thinking off the off the cuff now. Um, oh, please do. I, I don't. I'm. I don't know that there are other cultures that are specifically um, addressing the experience of non-straight people and then formulating a vision or a culture that is life-giving per se. But I do think that there are aspects of other cultures that, in themselves are more life-giving so that if you happen to be non-straight in that mm. culture you will experience what God has for you in the gospel um, and a lot of that boils down to community uh, conceptions of family and spiritual family and I would imagine friendships as well friendship exactly. I mean I think I think of C.S. Lewis's uh, four loves one of the best books out there you yep. read it and you think some of the ways he describes even like same-sex friendships, Yep. Some people in our culture right now would balk at um, yep. and say, oh, man, that's that's gay. No, yep. no, that's yeah, yeah, friendship. Yeah. One of the things I point out in the book is uh, and this is not something you will learn from many Christian thinkers, but it's it's definitely in the feminist literature. Um, is that one of the one of the um, one of the things that every man has to prove growing up uh, is that they are not gay. Mm. That's that's basically a milestone in the the development of masculinity. Masculine identity is proven in, West, in Western culture. In Western in Western culture, yeah. and that just isn't present in many other cultures. Um, and so the, 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 this idea that you know being gay has nothing says nothing about your your identity as a man um, just removes a roadblock in terms of uh, just coming to accept yourself 
and well, being able to, to understand that. Well, I, I mean, I can even think of men, uh, friends, people I've known who by disposition and personality and mm-hmm. um, I don't want to use the word effeminate. And, and the fact, it's funny because the reason I don't want to use the word effeminate is I think because of the way our culture yeah. defines that. Um, and yet, so the immediate uh, mindset is, oh, he's gay, or he thinks, oh, I am gay. There mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be another pathway. And I, I don't think the church has helped yeah. when they've just, when they have a caricatured masculinity yep. is the calling for men. Yeah. Um, and I know that it, just even over the history of even being a pastor, just uh, I can think of early times in my ministry where being kind of swept along in these masculinity manhood movements that yeah. that paints a picture. If you're not that, then yeah. there's something quote unquote wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and lots of people will be impacted by that unbiblical, I think, understanding of what masculinity is. My point is that gay people, gay men and gay women in particular are impacted in a particular way mm. by that. And so, you know, relating that back to this idea of a vision, I think that as Christian, as, you know, as a church, we need to cultivate a particular vision for what it would look like for gay people to thrive while adhering to a traditional sexual ethic. And that's not a and that's not an endeavor that we've taken seriously. I think we've simply said, don't do this, don't do that. Don't call yourself this, don't call yourself that. Um, and we haven't um, developed that positive vision. And one of the reasons, one of the main points that I try and make in that first section is, you know, what would that look like? What would that process look like? And I think the main inhibiting factor that keeps us from starting that as a culture, as a Christian culture in North America is a, a lack of corporate repentance. We have actually done the opposite to gay people. We have hurt them. Christian culture has treated gay people in a particular way. Um, and until we develop a cultural awareness of that and develop patterns of corporate repentance for that, um, then we will not really be in a position to offer a long-term vision for what it would look like to be um, to be gay and also in a traditional Christian space. I mean, evangelism is the goal. How are we going to evangelize people who are gay in the secular community? Well, we have to prove that we're actually offering something that God wants for them to flourish in. And if mm. all they see is a continuing pattern of mistreatment of gay people or a silence on past mistreatment of gay people, then there's going to be an element um, of our witness that's just not going to be compelling, and it's our fault. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the that all is the vision problem section yes. of, of the book. Yeah. That's that's one of three sections, right? Because you yeah, build, one of three. You build on that case. So so um, obviously this is the Cliff Notes version. But sure. um, so where do we go from there? I mean, so obviously we have this vision problem. So then, is the solution creating a better vision, or is there yeah. is it, what's brought? How, where does it go from there? So you, I mentioned repentance. So the idea of, you know, mm-hmm. culturally, we need to, to right. begin there. And then, you know, I was, I'm, I'm an ideas guy. I'm big picture thinking through, you know, what does, uh, what does, the, what theologically can we say about this entire experience, not just ethically about, you know, what you should and shouldn't do with your body. And, and so I turned to two ideas, two big ideas that I think are undeveloped in this conversation. The first is orientation. And the second is identity. So 
so thinking about orientation, what given the phenomenon of orientation and, and specifically, I, you know, popularly it's referred to as sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's uh, fine. Uh, but I, what I try and do in that entire section, it's four chapters long, is I try and think about, you know, theologically, what is this phenomenon of orientation and what can we say theologically about it? And so what that leads me to is thinking about, you know, sort of peeling back the layers, thinking about desire itself. What is desire? What does the Bible say about desire? How does desire relate to sin, to temptation? What does God say? What does the Bible say about who we are primarily, fundamentally? Are we fundamentally sexual beings or are we at more at a deeper core level? Are we just desiring beings in general? And I think that that's uh, an important move to make. I don't think that, um, so one of the main points I make in one of those chapters is that we've, we've taken too many of our marching orders from Freud, who boiled everything that humanity does, individual humans do, to sexual desire. And um, I think that in, in locating orientation around the center of sexuality, I think that that has... Uh, it hasn't helped our case. It mm -hmm. hasn't helped us think theologically about what orientation really is. And so, um, so that's why I try and do in that, in that section is think it, theologically about orientation. And, and so in that sense, does that mean that, and I, I suspect this is where you're headed, that mm -hmm. if our orientation is primarily sexual, if we're Freudian in that, and I can think of times where pastors, I can think of times where I've even said the phrase, we are sexual beings, mm -hmm. um, almost implies that that is the core of who we are, that it's yep. not just yep. a facet of who we are, but even making that statement says, hey, this is what we are, yep. that therefore, if we are at our core primarily sexual beings, therefore, our identity is primarily sexual. Yep. Is that yep. where you head with the identity yep. thing? Not to try yep. to steal the thunder, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, no. So, I... Uh, yeah, so I, I think about... Um, yeah, I'm switching gears because that's the no, second. That's no. the next. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm jumping into it too fast. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, no, no. So I, I, for me, that that part, that section on orientation is the primary purpose of that is to think theologically about what orientation might be if sexuality is not the core mm. reality. All right. So the, the difficulty is is that we do like our our bodies are characterized by sexuality. Our our life experience is affected inevitably by our sexuality and so in a sense whatever orientation is if it's not intrinsically or at, at its core sexual in nature it will inevitably be experienced within the realm of sexuality hmm. and so um that's an important i think just distinction to make but i think it's still worthwhile thinking about orientation in non-sexual terms because one of the things that is really confusing about being gay in a traditionalist Christian sense is, is, well, what about me is okay. <laughs> right. If, 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 if who I am in the core of my being is sexual in nature and this entire pattern of my attractions is against what the Bible says, then how am I not just a walking abomination to God? <laughs> you know, and I think that that's, that's um, sometimes with some, gay friends and some conversations I have with some folks in my church who are interacting with gay friends and family members, that almost becomes the period at the end of the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Where it is, um, and churches and Christians have had, have had to wrestle with 
they don't, I don't think they have a good answer for that. No. Well, yeah. I, I, so the answer I try and provide in that chapter and that, that, that whole part is what if, what if orientation was primarily directed towards perception and admiration of beauty and not towards actual just desire for sex? What if, what if the way we notice and are drawn to even the beauty in other image bearers is actually what is fundamentally at, um, at play in this phenomenon called orientation? And if that's the case, and then there's a pattern of that attraction, then what if that's what really what orientation really is? And if that's mm. the case, then it's just, it's a, in some, it's I mean, nothing in, I mean, in one sense, nothing in us that's, that's uh, object of desire is benign. Everything has the potential to be twisted and warped by sin. Uh, like I said, we inevitably experience orientation within the realm of our sexuality at some point. But if at its core, orientation isn't a desire for sex, but is simply the perception and admiration of beauty, then that's something that can be sanctified. That's something mm. that for me, when I notice the beauty in another man, if it's somebody uh, that is in my church that potentially is in my small group, I can give that to God and say, God, would you sanctify this so that it is not an occasion for lust for me, but is instead a, an occasion to celebrate the humanhood, the person, the, the, the personhood of this individual and something, an occasion to, to get to know this person better, to even potentially become friends. Uh, all of those, those desires really uh, for intimacy I experience, I inevitably experience them within the context of my orientation, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily leading me to sin if I'm following the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit bring conviction to my heart and, and listening to the advice of others, all those yeah. things. And if your thesis is right there, um, which I'm processing, um, sure. if your thesis there is is right, it can be broadened to straight people and their admiration friendships, friendships with the opposite sex see a That's lot of right. times there's you know the billy graham rule um yep, yep. that has become uh that i think had good intentions mm -hmm. um th there are men who just avoid friendships with any women yep. because so so the only friends that they can have are women that they're not attracted to or their mom i mean it's just yeah. it, it yeah. just it 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 um unnecessarily truncates community yep it's, it when you exclude in anybody that you might possibly be attracted yeah. to yeah yep i mean if you think the language the bible gives us you know especially in the new testament for the new the new covenant community is a very intimate image of spiritual family brothers sisters i mean those that's intimate language and yet for many people who do shut the the, the possibility off for intimate opposite sex mm -hmm. friendships you know, those words don't ring true to their actual experience. And so in, in a very real way, they're not living into the, the new covenant community that God has called us to participate in. Yeah. It's interesting because it's almost, it's almost like, I can think of two people off the top of my head, my sister who lives in St. Louis, the same city you're in, mm -hmm. my daughter, both attractive, but mm -hmm. I, would not because I have a category for them, sister and daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm able to appreciate them as beautiful people. Yeah, and have an intimate relationship with yep. them. Yeah, and yet we our 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 circle for that is too small. Yeah, and what you're arguing for really is is broadening that circle yep. both for for straight and non-straight people to be able to 
appreciate beauty without sexualizing the other person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I don't, again, I don't, I don't claim to have written the final word on any of this. I'm just no, trying to, no, this to is, move this the is, needle, this is, no, move the yeah. needle forward and, and, and think, think creatively because we have, we have fresh challenges in our culture. And as Christians over the past 40, 50 years, we haven't, I don't think we've addressed those challenges in a, a healthy way. So, so let's move the conversation to identity then. Yeah. Because I, I do think that that's, that issue is, that that's the one talked about almost more often than anything right oh, now. Sure, sure. That's, that's the issue. So to unpack where you had with that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I just try and think about, okay, given what I've just said about orientation and how I've tried to describe it theologically, you know, what does that say about who I can think of myself as or who I can think of myself to be, you know, in you know, lowercase I identity. And, um, you know, I, I think I devote five chapters in that part. Um, so I, I go through lots of different things, but what I try and land on is this, this idea of a social identity. So social identity theory is a branch of social psychology that, that looks at group behavior and group identity, really. And it talks, it explores how groups take on an identity um, what aspects of group identity are particularly meaningful to that group that make it that group, and then how groups treat other groups that maybe want to be within that group, an in-group versus an out-group. And uh, I just, I, I do a lot of just reflection on applying those ideas to the sociological reality in North American evangelicalism. And the upshot of that whole part uh, is basically thinking about what if gay, like the identity of being gay, is not uh, just this global identity that is uh, encapsulates everything that you are, but what if it's something that's very more specific, and specifically, I mean, what if it's a, what I call a secondary gender identity? So a primary gender identity, in my, the way I, I use the terms, is binary, man or woman. That reflects creation. God created us to have two, either one of two mm -hmm. genders, male mm -hmm. or female. But in cultures where uh, categories exist that index or that, that describe a particular kind of man or a particular kind of woman, often labels will crop up that index identities according to that category. And so I, I basically make the case that what's happened in Western culture is that orientation has become a meaningful enough category. It's broadly recognized. It's even if we don't all know what it is or we don't all Having, have, we haven't all reflected in depth about what orientation is. We're still aware of the phenomenon. And our culture has produced labels like gay and straight and lesbian that index identities according to that category. And so the way I talk about it, gay is a secondary gender identity. It's, and it, it's, a, it's a, a second level identity that, that specifies what kind of man or what kind of woman someone is according to their orientation. And it doesn't mean anything more or less than that. And so, for example, I never use the phrase gay Christian in the book. People sometimes will argue, will say, well, you're saying people should call themselves gay Christians. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, that's not, I've never used that phrase. I personally don't prefer that phrase. I think it's confusing, can be unhelpful. Um, but what's more, I think what's more accurate is just say I'm a gay man because man is my primary gender identity and then gay is the secondary descriptor of that. And so um, 
then I think if that's the case, then that leaves plenty of room to think about, well, who, as a man, that's my primary gender identity, who am I really as a man? And then what's truest about me as a man is that I'm united with Christ. I've, I'm seated with him in the heavenlies. I've been crucified with him and I've been raised with him in new life. Like the spiritual reality of my experience is my, what's truest about me. But that doesn't mean that as a bodily human being, I don't have other experiences that also inform how I think about myself, including how I think about myself as a man in the culture I live in with this orientation that I believe is primarily aesthetic and not sexual. Mm. So that's where I go with that, that third. Yeah. Point. Yeah. Wow. So um, we have, um, I think there's so much more that we could do, but I want to just, uh, what I'd love to have you do just mm-hmm. kind of in, and, and this is going to end up being a little bit longer of a, an episode than I normally do, but I think it's worth it sure. is I'd love to have you, if you could, um, and sometimes it's hard to do because, again, we don't want to be monolithic or uh, generalists. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to have you give advice to certain categories of people. Sure. Um, as just And we can kind of walk through these, but I'm thinking about just advice to uh, the church broadly, the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. Advice to um, non-straight people, gay people who are both inside and outside the church? Like yeah. what advice do you have for them? Um, what do straight people need to hear? Like, so like in those broad <laughs> categories, I, and I know that that could be another two-hour conversation. Yeah. But are there distinctive pieces of advice you would have for any of those groups of people? Yeah. So I, you know, the, my heart really, um, and, and what the ministry of Revoice that I'm, you know, that I started a couple of years ago and it, my heart really is directed primarily towards actual sexual minorities, people who are gay and and who have grown up in the church or who, for whatever reason today, are still um, in traditionalist Christian spaces. And you know, my heart really is for them to 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 be grounded in their faith so that they can withstand the pull of our culture toward a uh, an affirming position um, on on this this issue. Um, and, and my heart really is for them to, to be able to feel like they belong in spiritual community. And so, uh, you know, it's hard. Um, it's sometimes it's very lonely, uh, to, to constantly feel different, feel like you're trying to belong and trying to be known, but people, uh, for whatever reason, don't understand or aren't willing to try and, you know, get in the, the, the ditch with you and figure things out. And so my heart really is for, for that group of people is to, to not give up, to continue fighting, to, to, to belong. Uh, you fight sin, but you know, also fight to belong. Um, and then, you know, for parents, uh, there's, uh, we have a lot of parents come to our conference. And so we have programming for them. And a lot of, you know, there's two, two basic groups of parents in, that we've seen. Um, one is parents of adult kids who are gay and have rejected the faith or, or living uh, in an affirming faith environment. Um, and then there's parents who, you know, have gay kids still at home. They've had kids come out to them or they've discovered that their, their son or daughter is gay and they're still living at home in high school, that kind of thing. And, you know, those needs vary as well because sometimes the kids are continuing to embrace a traditional sexual ethic and just trying to figure out, like, how can Christianity be helpful for me? Um, I, I want to belong somewhere. I want to belong to somebody 
um, or to a group of people, but I, I don't see how that will happen. Um, and so, um, yeah, you just, you know, the, the, the word to parents in either of those situations is just love on your kids. Mm. Um, let them know that there's nothing they can do that would, that would change the way you feel about them. Um, you know, and then just pastors, a lot of times, uh, we have a lot of pastors show up to our events as well. And, you know, this year we're, we're going to have an entire pastor's track. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, we had one last year actually too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, pastor, the pastors have a unique opportunity because as the vision shaping force in the church, um, what's said from the platform, from the pulpit, from whatever shapes the way that the church is perceived and the way that specifically gay people in your church will perceive uh, the church and whether it's a, an open enough space for them. Um, and so uh, there's a variety of, of things I think that pastors can do as well. Uh, communicate that there's a teachable posture, that they are teachable about this. Um, that they need to learn, that they know they need to learn, that they know that if they don't have gay friends, then they're going to be uh, ill-positioned to be able to apply the gospel in a meaningful way to a gay person, particularly a gay person who's grown up in traditional Christian spaces and has that, that history of being pushed to the margins, pushed to the shadows. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I could go on in all those yeah, different that's, categories. That's great. So, so you you said you guys have a conference still coming up. You guys, coronavirus messing you up at all, or you guys? Well, yeah, we have contingency plans. Uh, we'll we'll go 100 virtual if we have to. Um, we're we're still making that call because it's two, it's two and a half months away. Okay. Um, so where can people find out about that? Um, where is it going to be? When's it going to be? So it's going to be uh, July 23rd to 25th, and uh, if we have the actual physical conference, it'll be in St. Louis. Um, either way, all the information's on our website, revoice.us. So. Great. Well, I'll, uh, in the show notes, I'll put links to all your stuff, to your book, to your, uh, to your site, uh, to the conference, all that. I just appreciate you so much, Nate. This is, uh, Thanks, this has given me a ton to think about. And, <laughs> and, um, so I'm looking forward to just kind of walking my way slowly through the book and having another conversation with you down the road, whether it be here on the podcast or at your conference, I'm, I'm tempted to look at my schedule right now and try to figure out whether I could be there and just really appreciate your voice uh, oh, in, you. in this conversation. And well, thank so, you for, um, for wanting to, to re recognizing the conversations necessary. Cause that's, that's as just in itself, that's a very encouraging thing to see. And, and one of the things that has been really rewarding about just seeing people respond to things like my book, things like our conference, uh, people like me are in the church and we do have thoughts about how we understand our experience and what the Bible says to that and speaks to that. And so it's, it's encouraging to have conversations with other folks who recognize that too. Well, I appreciate so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this was uh, Nate Collins. His book is All But Invisible. And I uh, just highly encourage uh, you to check out his work, uh, check out his the links in the show notes. And uh, we will be back. Uh, who knows? Maybe another COVID-19 episode coming up. But uh, it was refreshing to have a conversation on a different topic. We'll see you soon. <laughs>